Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. We are short and Englishman today. Uh, Charles is on vacation. I don't know why he does that. I've always kind of thought vacations were for for sissies, but um, you know, Charlie, uh, Charlie does what he does. So we have a uh, guest today who is Dominic Pino of National Review. Am I saying your name right? By the way, I've never said your last name before. Is it Pino? That, that's or- correct. That's correct. You got it. Yep. And I'm guessing that's uh, it's an Italian last name. Yes, it is. Okay. And uh, Dominic is a Rhodes Fellow at uh, National Review. And why don't you um, sort of do the short bio rundown for for listeners who, who don't know you? Sure. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, Thomas Rhodes Fellow at National Review Institute. Um, I mentioned this before and people were like, oh, that's that's really impressive. Congratulations. And they think I'm talking about Rhodes Scholar, which is not the same thing. <laughs> I was not one of those. Uh, Actually, I went to- but T- Thomas Rhodes was a pretty, pretty admirable man as as opposed to uh, the fellow the Rhodes Scholarship is named for. So that is true. If I have to pick a Rhodes, uh, I'm, I'm going to take I'm going to take him over over Cecil any day. Um, I uh, I went to uh, George Mason University for economics, got my bachelor's and master's degree there. Um, and, uh, work with Andrew Stutterford on Capital Matters for NR. So, uh, writing stuff there, editing, and, um, uh, I, uh, live in, uh, Fairfax, Virginia still, uh, right outside DC, but, uh, I'm originally from Wisconsin. So, um, good, uh, adding to the, uh, Wisconsin ranks at NR along with, uh, John McCormick and our new Buckley fellow, Luther Abel, also Wisconsin man. So very happy about that. Lots, lots of those around there. What is Wisconsin like? I've been there, but I've never really spent a lot of time there. What is, uh, what are, what are the cultural eccentricities of Wisconsin? Uh, it's great. Um, obviously, uh, uh, beer, cheese, and sausage. Um, uh, as, uh, that, that, that is, that is true. That's not just a stereotype. Uh, there's lots of that going on. Um, uh, Packers fandom, uh, you can always, uh, bond over the Green Bay Packers with any Wisconsinite anywhere in the world. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lovely place. Uh, I, you know, uh, grew up, uh, around, uh, outside of Milwaukee. So that's the area that I know best. And, um, yeah, Southeast Wisconsin is very nice. Um, you know, it's nice because on the weekend, everybody from Illinois comes up to Wisconsin and no one from Wisconsin goes to Illinois on the weekend. So I think uh, people vote with their feet and make pretty clear the, uh, the superiority of, of Wisconsin. Yeah. I'm surprised as people from Illinois go back. <laughs> I suppose they have jobs and things they have to uh, go to from time to time. How'd you like George Mason? I worked on that campus for a while, but not at the university. I was at the Institute for Humane Studies. I was just yeah, you were at IHS, right? Um, Lost on campus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh yeah, no, George Mason's great. Um I, I was at the um most of my classes were on the Fairfax campus for for undergrad and then uh at the uh Arlington campus for uh for the master's program and um and uh yeah it's it's very nice. The uh economics program there is is phenomenal and uh it's it's definitely definitely worth checking out if you're if you're interested in that sort of thing anybody anybody listening i i, I encourage it who are your favorite uh, professors there uh favorite professors wow well i was fortunate enough to have uh, walter williams for one class before he passed oh, yeah. away so yeah, uh cool. yeah 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 so, so that was good i took his one undergrad class uh he teaches one section of intermediate uh microeconomics to undergrads and then everything else he does is phd level 
Uh, and so, uh, so I was fortunate enough to take that before, uh, two years before he died. So, um, so that was fun. Uh, and then, uh, uh, Thomas Rustici is the gatekeeper to the economics department there. So he's the, uh, the sort of econ 103 guy. Uh, and he's terrific, uh, learned a ton from him. And, uh, and then the master's program, probably, uh, Garrett Jones, uh, one of my favorites there, uh, uh, is very good on, uh, macroeconomic stuff, uh, central banking, all that sort of thing. So. I had an econ professor in college who did me a great favor one time, which was talking me out of being an economics major. <laughs> you, you you have good econ stuff. You have good econ stuff. You always you always prefaced it with your uh, your English major math. Well, that was the thing. So. so I was talking to him. He said, "Do you know what you do with a BA and or a bachelor's degree in economics?" And I said, "No. What do you do with a bachelor's degree in economics?" He said, "You get a PhD in economics." <laughs> and I said, "Well, okay." And he said, "How much do you really like math?" <laughs> and I said, "Not very much." And he said, "Because you're basically getting a math degree." you know yeah well that's the beauty of george mason is we, they don't believe in that so <laughs> not a math economics program that's right maybe i i could have gone there but uh, uh-huh. i think i'm getting uh past the, the point in life where i'm going to go back to college that's that's probably fair yeah well maybe i should uh should think about it how did you get interested in burke you've um you've got a book that's come out through um partly through the national review institute and the acting people and you've co-edited with uh who uh, Daniel Klein, one of my other uh, favorite professors at, at George Mason, he, um, uh, we uh, wrote this, well, edited this book of uh, quotations from from Evan Burke. And so uh, our sort of idea behind it was to create something for people who might be interested in Burke and have heard of Burke and sort of know of him as the sort of intellectual father of Anglo-conservatism, but haven't actually read anything that he wrote uh, because uh, there are a lot of those people, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that because he has, of course, the reflections of on the revolution, which is very uh, notable as like a book by itself. But a lot of the rest of the stuff he wrote is letters and pamphlets and things that are all kind of all over the place. And so we wanted to organize it into one book, put it together, and uh, and uh, yeah, we were able to do that with this. We wrote a little introduction to sort of set it up, and then provide annotations and things to clarify confusing references that he makes sometimes to uh history that his audience knew about but uh modern audience might not so um i think there are a lot of burkeans who haven't read burke yeah yeah i think so too and um uh you know he's he really is uh just he's first of all he's just a very lively writer he's Mm -hmm. very um you know you, you feel that it even you know 200 plus years later you still feel that energy that he had that he brought to uh debates both political debates and intellectual debates i mean he wasn't uh you know he was a member of parliament but he was uh also really interested in the political philosophical questions and it it really shows how far uh, legislatures have fallen off uh, from talking about those things not a lot of birds in the congress maybe ben sass it's kind of uh it's close yeah Yeah, well, there's the there's the parallel that uh, they said uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was the American Burke. Oh, um, sure, yeah, yeah. He was in his early sixties when he wrote Reflections. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, 1789. So he was, um, yeah, he would have been, he would have been in his sixties. Yeah. So that's an old man for that time. Yeah, yeah, relatively. Yeah, and, and that's what our book focuses on. So it's the last chapter of his life, basically. So from the publication of Revolutions 
uh, until his death in 17, uh, uh, 1797. Um, that's sort of what we're focusing on. And that span of his life, he just turned his focus to uh, this uh, overall struggle for liberty against radicalism, what we call radicalism. He doesn't quite put it that way, but we sort of use that as an umbrella term. And he sees that most embodied in the French Revolution, but he sees it spreading in England. He sees it spreading uh, across the continent, and he sees this as just a threat. And, uh, you know, if you think uh, wokeness or, uh, you know, any of these progressive ideas are new in any way, uh, (laughs) you read a lot of these passages from Burke and you're like, wait a minute, that sounds similar to what people talk about now. It does. Uh, Ours haven't got out the guillotines yet. But um, no, no, they haven't. They haven't. Yeah, they don't. So radicalism is an interesting subject to me. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit because it's sort of uh, it's sort of in fashion right now um, on both sides of the the political aisle. Um, we have a politics in which there's a sort of natural uh, because of our current communication structure, kind of rhetorical escalation to being. Um, sort of as puristic and as maximalistic in your positions as you can. And the ideas of, you know, sort of moderation, compromise, that kind of thing is in in disrepute. Uh, people like, you know, Mitt Romney, who are seen as being kind of moderate, are held up for scorn and ridicule as being, you know, insufficiently committed to the cause. And you see that, uh, if anything, more intensely on the left side of the political spectrum, where, you um, Biden right now is crashing among young voters, especially uh, who had backed him very, very strongly because he is seen as not being radical enough. And I am uh, a Berkeyan to the extent that I am really, really suspicious and uh, put off by radicalism of any kind, including radicalism on my side. You know, I'm uh, I'm someone who um, admires Barry Goldwater a lot, but his famous quotation that extremism in defensive liberty is no virtue, I think is crazy. And uh, I think I might have I might have told him that at the time. It's a good line. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a good line. But um, that sort of radicalism, I think, is is just sort of inherent. Well, it's inherently unconservative in the sense that it assumes a level of confidence in our own correctness, in our own powers of analysis and the long-term wisdom of our our political program that I don't think anyone should have. Um, I think we should be more modest and more um, circumspect about these sort of things. The conservatives certainly shouldn't have it because typically, and Burke, of course, is a great example of this, what makes people conservatives of the sort of conservative that Burke was is watching some kind of radicalism run away with itself. You know, I grew up, um, was coming of age right at the end of the Cold War. And so we had this um, fairly neat uh, division in the world where you had a significant chunk of Europe and uh, parts of Asia that had been carried away by this fanatical ideology. And then you had the rest of the world, which has ideologies, certainly but not that kind of fanaticism, that kind of commitment to it, that they just sort of muddle through. And, um, you know, we're, we're free market people in the United States and they're, they're free market and free trade people in, in most of the rest of the English-speaking countries, but there's never been a kind of program 
of trying to reorganize the organic parts of society around some uh, schematic approach to uh, capitalism or even to uh, to liberty. If anything, the, the American Revolution was in some ways close to that in the sense that it was an attempt to set up a, uh, a society around a certain political doctrine um, as, as encapsulated in a particular group of documents, but it was one that was designed to accommodate the societies that already existed there. Um, one of the things I think that maybe in our time is underappreciated about the founding era is just how culturally distinct the states were at that time, where life in Pennsylvania was very, very different from life in Massachusetts and life in Virginia was very, very different from life in either of those places. And what they came up with was something that was a kind of, it was radical in its way, but it was also radically conservative and sensible in its way, and that it was designed to accommodate these differences and designed to accommodate the society that actually existed rather than being an attempt to remake society in someone's uh, ideological or philosophical vision of justice and the good life and all that. And there, there are times when we wish they'd gone further in that direction, particularly on the issue of slavery, of course. Uh, that's the, the the one thing that really, of course, stands out about that era where you wish they'd maybe been a little more ideological and puritanical about their their commitment to to liberty. But beyond that very large uh, oversight, it seems like the that the founders came to the same place Burke did in many ways and uh, and and later, of course, for the for the same reasons after watching uh, what happened in in France. You know, there's a kind of um, I've never really written this essay, but I but maybe I should one of these days. There's a kind of uh, paternity that goes through revolutions. You know, you get the American Revolution, which inspires the French Revolution. Um, the Bolsheviks model themselves on the uh, on the French Revolution. The Iranians model themselves on the Bolshevik Revolution, and what starts off as a revolution that goes pretty well turns out bad in every other case. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, sort of murderous and homicidal and repressive in almost every other case, which some people will say, well, that's American exceptionalism. But the, the lesson I take away from that is to be really, really careful about revolutions and revolutionary thinking and re revolutionary rhetoric. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, the Burke had this great sort of uh, wisdom to keep circumstances in mind all the time. So he never had this sort of general overarching view. That's why sort of the uh, uh, construal of him as the creator of conservative ideology is a little bit misleading because it's not like he had, you know, it's not like there was this ideological program out there and then he made his own ideological program to compete with it. That wasn't what he was trying to do. He was basically saying that the uh, program of the French revolutionaries is destructive. Um, one of his lines that I think is really good is he says that their their liberty isn't liberal. Um, and, uh, and so he prizes that sort of idea of liberality, of, of being uh, liberal in the sense of, in the sense that doesn't just mean liberty. It means uh, something more than that. It means 
you know, well-ordered, well-ordered is usually the, the modifier that we'll put in front of that well-ordered Liberty. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, his, his criticisms of, of the French and then of what they, what they go on to inspire. I and mean, like you said, I mean, he was, he was, he obviously didn't know about the, uh, Bolsheviks, but he did see, uh, the rise of somebody like Napoleon coming in France. And he, he called that, you know, before it happened and, and it happened after he, after he died, but, um, but he was right about it. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, there is a certain element to these things that is predictable. There's a pattern and there are ways to avoid these, these impulses. The other thing that's interesting about it is that there seems to be something just sort of natural about the revolutionary radical impulse, because nowadays we like to attribute these sort of things to Karl Marx or Anthony Gramsci or like these March through the institutions people or any of this kind of stuff. And obviously there is, there is a, a case to be made for that. And those people are influential. It's not to say that they don't matter, but uh, when you read Burke, who's writing before those guys wrote anything, <laughs> he's really diagnosing the same problem. And so it, it really seems that there is a sort of natural impulse uh, in human behavior that we create institutions and, uh, you know, raise and educate people to overcome and to think differently. And I think that's an important part of the, uh, liberal political tradition properly understood lowercase L liberal, all those qualifiers. Uh, but I think that is an important part of it is creating this sort of sense of sense of duty and a sense of, um, uh, uh, preserving the uh, blessings that we got from our ancestors. Yeah. Burke is interesting to me on that front because um, he did contemplate some, some very large social changes. He was, for instance, as you, as you know, a very, I guess what we would call a very conservative abolitionist mm-hmm. in that he hoped for and had, I guess, a, a program for ending slavery and the slave trade but not all at once and not at a single you know, stroke or a single piece of legislation. I don't actually know very much about his uh, the details of his anti-slavery thinking, though. I wonder if you could maybe fill me in on some of that. Sure. He had a uh, publication called Sketch of a Negro Code, and um, the idea was uh, he wanted to make, uh, as you said, he wanted to make a, a gradual uh, abolition of slavery that would start with abolishing the slave trade then would go to trying to reassimilate uh slaves into society gradually um it involved things like setting up churches and schools in the colonies so all across africa um and his he had sort of had this idea of you know we're going to set up these little sort of mini Englands all over the place. So we're going to have a church of England. We're going to have a a school and we're going to, you know, bring these people into uh, English society. Um, But, you know, where they are. So in Africa and in the Caribbean primarily. And um, uh, because slavery on the British Isles was already outlawed at that time by a judicial decision. 
And so uh, it was solely a question of the colonies. Um, he favored letting the American colonies go during the revolution. He was not uh, very onto them. And that's obviously a big change he supported as well of letting a huge landmass leave the, leave the country. But um, yeah, his gradual plan for abolition um, was not something he was able to, you know, it didn't actually happen that way, but it's sort of the way that the British did abolish slavery sort of followed his, um, his pattern a little bit. It happened after he died, but, um, you know, they did first abolish the slave trade. They waited, uh, I believe, almost 20 years to actually abolish slavery in total. And the gradual approach, which ran very much through civil society in in England, um, you know, was finally led by guys like William Wilberforce and and, and all of them. Uh, but it, it turned it into a... a, a, a social movement that had a broad base of support and very gradually ended it. Now we can fault them for their being gradual, but also they were able to do it before the United States did and without a war. And um, I, I think that is, that is something uh, worth, worth, worth commending. That gradualism um, you mentioned actually is of interest to me because that's really the, the real moral tension at the, at the heart of conservatism in many ways. So I've been sort of thinking and writing a bit about the early days of the Republican Party and its character as being a conservative anti-slavery party. So, you know, the Republican Party in its earliest days in its formation was an anti-slavery party, but it wasn't an abolitionist party. And, uh, you know, it was its main interests at that time were uh, preventing the spread of slavery to new territories with the idea that um, slavery would naturally kind of die out under its own um, economic weight in the South and the rest of the country. And Lincoln, of course, when, when he's elected, uh, sort of makes the most, one of the most eloquent kind of states' rights cases for slavery um, you will ever hear in his uh, first inauguration address. So it's, uh, that's, it's one of the difficult things about being conservatives. You look at something and you say, this thing is evil. You know, it's slavery, it's abortion, it's um, the situation of life under some dictator somewhere in the world. And then you also say to yourself, but we have to live with it, um, at least maybe for a time, or at least maybe in a certain context and certain circumstances. Um, you know, when we're talking about domestic issues within the United States, of course, it's a very different line of thinking from trying to right every wrong in every country around the world. But um, I think that is one of the things that makes it difficult to sort of bring people into the conservative camp because we are always kind of saying, well, but, or have we thought about, or yes, to a certain extent, or yes, but not quite so much, or yes, not now. And so people look at some evil in the world and say, this is a thing that must be obliterated right now. This problem must be completely solved right now. And conservatives say, well, there are a lot of, pieces at play in any kind of decent, developed, free society. And you have to be careful about moving those pieces around in the pursuit of something that is virtuous and is uh, maybe in the long run or even in the short term morally necessary. Um, but to think about how to go about making these changes in such a way as not to disrupt your society in a way that leaves everyone worse off or your institutions weakened and to do a do a greater evil or a significant evil 
by trying to eliminate a different evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's like uh, Jonah Goldberg says, uh, you know, it's not very, uh, you don't hear big crowds chanting, you know, what do we want? Prudent change. When do we want it? In the fullness of time. Uh, yes. This just doesn't <laughs> doesn't get people excited uh, like 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 other things. And, you know, the left has always I had... I don't want politics to be exciting, though. I, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I want to keep excited people as far away from power as possible. That's that is that is true, and um, and I, I share that. Um, you know, the left the left has always had the chanting advantage over conservatives. Yeah. They they're better at that. I give them that. Uh, but um, when when conservatives start chanting, it's it's bad news. Yeah, that's that's correct. <laughs> that There's correct. nowhere in the world where that's really worked out very well. <laughs> no, no. Um, but there, but there is definitely something about this sort of uh, uh, getting a lot of buy-in and this is something that that buckley tried to do was to get uh sort of um you know uh, it didn't didn't found national review with the intention of it having a million subscribers the idea was for it to be for you know people who are interested and are supportive of conservatism but also as a way to reach elite audiences and small groups of people that that make uh, that make important decisions and uh, and to affect change through that avenue, um, which is, you know, I see sort of a, a parallel to that with the British abolition with uh, with the way that the ultimately successful abolitionists went about it. Uh, you know, it's, there was a uh, they called themselves uh, the Clapham sect. I mean, they called themselves a sect. They were a small group of people uh, in a neighborhood of London that, uh, you know, that were very influential in Parliament and in a couple other, uh, you know, other places and got got leadership together to do this. And, you know, William Wilberforce and them, you know, they didn't abolish slavery. Slavery still exists in places in the world. It's a terrible thing. Slavery is still out there. But what they did abolish was for it to be fashionable to support slavery, um, really, you, you really can't find anybody that does that, and 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 so that seems to be sort of a a necessary precondition to actually making the change is is winning over um, uh, winning over people who who have the have the power to do that, and I think uh, I think that that is a very effective way that conservatives can can do what we want and and again to to do it in a way that's that's prudent and and does take time but eventually i mean this uh, uh, overturning the roe versus wade decision was a, a great example of this that it, it took it took a very long time it took decades lots of people put their life's work into it um whether it's conservative legal movement types or pro life activists and um that sort of alliance between uh uh you know uh Activists making a religious and, and moral case against abortion, and then conservative legal movement making the originalist and, and, and legal case against it, was finally able to to overturn uh, that wrong. So um, I, I think we have a good track record on this, and I, I think it's it's a it's a viable model uh, for uh, other things going forward. Yeah, I agree. One last thing on Burke, I thought we'd maybe talk about before we move on to some news of the day is. Um, I don't think Burke would like being held up as a patron saint very much. I think he would probably object to that formulation. But he's used that way as a sort of a mascot sometimes by conservatives who are anti-capitalist or who um, would like to see 
um, less trade, uh, more restrictions on trade, uh, more regulation of business, that sort of thing. Conservatives who are skeptical of uh, the role of business and trade and markets in our life and think that it's excessive and should be uh, reeled in in favor of giving power relatively to other kinds of institutions. Do you think that's that's consistent with what Burke actually thought? I do not, no. Um, I would encourage anybody who thinks that to read um, Thoughts and Details on Scarcity, which was one of Burke's last works that he wrote. It is one of the most free market things you'll read from that time. He is very much, I mean, it's it's a lot of it sounds exactly like Adam Smith. Uh, he talks about how when when government shows up at the market, it just corrupts the market. Um, these kind of things. He's he's very very clear about this. He also has multiple letters on trade with Ireland, which was a issue between the UK and and Ireland at this or and uh, yeah, in Ireland at this time. Um, there were all sorts of trade barriers um, between them, and he supported removing them. Um, because uh, for basic reasons of free trade that people make today, you know, uh, uh, bilateral free trade will make both sides better off, uh, you know, that, that sort of argument. And he is always persuaded and thinks a lot about evidence of things of like, okay, is this working? Is this doing what we wanted it to do? And, uh, and, and with the, with, with Ireland, um, he very much wanted for those trade barriers to be removed. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't see that. I see Burke and Adam Smith as being on the same page economically. Um, there's some evidence that they, uh, uh that, that Burke admired Smith and, and that sort of thing as well. They were around at roughly the same time. Um, do we but, know if they've uh, ever met? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, but I'm not totally sure about that. Gotcha. Good stuff. You know, um, a couple of years ago, I went to a um, coffee shop and there was a young guy there about college age who was reading uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. And so I, I sort of went and introduced myself. I said, we should probably uh, we should probably know each other. And so we, we talked for a little bit and he was um, indeed a, a college undergraduate and who was uh sort of conservative but hadn't really been you know schooled so to speak and was 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 learning about the conservative movement and the various institutions and things like that and uh i always tell the story because he was he was very very impressed by the fact that i know ben shapiro and i told him you know ben shapiro knows me but uh <laughs> so yeah it's 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 interesting the uh the, the reach that uh, different institutions have in different uh, ways of presenting um, viewpoints and, and, and news and opinion, how they shake out in the real world. So uh, Shapiro has obviously an enormous footprint, but Burke is still out there being read by uh, people who are under 50. And that is a very encouraging sign from my point of view. In fact, I might sit down and, and reread some of that. That's I think you may have inspired me to uh, to do that. Yeah, definitely check out thoughts and details on scarcity. Like I said, as far as economic mm -hmm. texts go, that one's excellent. And he uh, 
a key part of his case in there too is that uh you know government should do what it can to make sure its people are prosperous and comfortable and uh that sounds like a uh endorsement of state action unless you read his point which is the best way for government to do that is to just lay off <laughs> um that's that's really a good way for them to go about achieving that goal and um uh, at least in a lot of context in a lot of uh for a lot of areas of life um, i think it's it's often when we're talking about you know the fear of radicalism uh it is certainly possible to overread that as well uh you know my first kind of longish book i wrote um uh, called the engineer was an attempt to kind of deal with some of that in the libertarian world where there's this tendency to take a kind of almost fatalistic view that the answer to every question is, well, the free market will take care of it or private charity will take care of it. Well, maybe, yeah, but what does that actually look like? Mm -hmm. um, what do those institutions look like? What do those programs look like? What do the failures of those institutions and programs look like? Um, what is the project of reforming and improving those institutions and programs look like? I think it's it's one of the allures of radicalism maybe is that it, it's an invitation. It's a kind of permission slip to be simplistic about things that, yeah. um, well, if the government would just do what the people, capital P, want, then the people would be happy. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually probably true. So, yeah, I, I guess one of the, the, the allures of radicalism are these um, single factor explanations for complex problems. And yeah, definitely. Approaches, yeah. You have been writing about uh, strikes recently, right? Mm -hmm. um, what's what's that story? So around the world right now, we're seeing a fair number of strikes in transportation, uh, even in uh, countries that have generally seen pretty tranquil labor relations in recent years. So give me some examples. So uh, port dock workers in Germany. Uh, they haven't gone on strike for 30 years. They've gone on strike twice this year already and are probably will again. They've gone through, I believe, seven rounds of wage negotiations now mm. um, and uh, haven't been able to come through. Uh, the United Kingdom had passenger rail train strike. They're currently, there's one right now, uh, which is the second one this year. Um, they had one in June as well. And uh, the one in June was the largest uh, rail strike in 30 years in the UK. Uh, the one now is the largest in 30 days and uh, <laughs> they um, they're striking over pay. I mean, it, it's very simple stuff. It's it's it, and it's the root cause is inflation because yeah. for a long time in the developed world, we've had steady 2% in a lot of places, less than 2%, some places below 1% inflation. And so every year wage negotiation time comes around company goes, you know, we'll give you two and a half percent, three percent raise. And everyone's sort of okay with that. And we've sort of we've just gotten used to that over over 30 years of very stable, low inflation. But now that we have inflation eight, nine percent, depending on what country you're looking at, uh that's not going to cut it anymore because a three percent wage increase with nine percent inflation is a six percent wage cut. And so that's economic. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah so um so we see this uh, a problem all over the place uh 
the places that have been able to avoid strikes have given really big raises. So, um, you think they've been emboldened some by the kind of post-COVID uh, labor shortage? That as well. That as well. They have a lot of leverage because of that. Uh, they're definitely in a situation where employers need them more than they need the employers, and uh, and they know that, and they're and they're playing their hand uh, as 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 well as they can. Um, I wrote a piece uh, about a year ago, I guess, that was not very well received, and it was when. Um, you had a lot of people talking about labor shortages, like in you know the grocery business and the warehouse business and things like that. And I wrote a piece arguing, well, have you tried paying people more? You yeah, know, have you tried yeah. raising the wages for these jobs a whole lot and seeing if people do it. Because you always hear these dumb claims that, well, you know, Americans won't do X. Well, no, they will. They just won't do it for the for the for the salary you're offering. Uh, Americans will do a lot of things for uh, for enough money. Now, obviously, it's it's unlikely that we're going to pay people one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to pick tomatoes, but um, although we pay them that to pick cotton, uh, as it turns out, one person can harvest a tremendous amount of of cotton with with modern machinery. So, um, I'm generally pretty well disposed toward uh, people who are, whether they're in organized labor or just kind of you know regular workers, uh, making the most of a labor shortage and taking advantage of the market being uh, kind of in their favor for once, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I see that. And um, and like I said, I, you know, they they have a good point, which is if you give me a 3% raise with 9% inflation, you're, you're cutting my pay. Um, that's, that's, that's correct. Um, the issue comes in when it's being encouraged and egged on by politicians that see it as advantageous, um, which uh, we probably see a, you know see a little bit of that in Germany. The SPD is in charge over there. They're they're cozy with with labor. Um, in Canada, we've seen a couple of rail strikes. Of course, the Liberals are in charge up there. They're cozy with labor. Um, and uh, and so that's the trend that you sort of see as possibly being concerning about the United States because here we've had a large move away from organized labor in the private sector for decades and decades. But in transportation specifically, it's still pretty heavily unionized in especially particularly in the ports, right? Yep. Yep. The ports and uh, freight rail is is very unionized as well. And both of those are uh positions that are already very, very well paid. Um you you've written about the, the uh uh wages that some California dock workers get. Some of them can make Five hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Um, uh, the average um, uh, freight rail worker out there, uh, you know, a lot of them make six figures. Um, some of them make, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, mid six figures, um, or, or you know, mid uh, mid hundreds, uh, hundred fifty thousand around there, and. Um, and so these are very well compensated positions. Now the I assume we pay Rhodes Fellows five or six hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> we we do not. We do not pay Rhodes Fellows that much. Uh uh, but uh but yeah, so so these are very well paid um positions for the sort of training that goes into them. Um a lot of this is done with on the job training. These are not jobs that require college degrees. And it's terrific that we have jobs for people without college degrees that can make a lot of money. That's that's wonderful. Um and uh and these uh, these are things that they're struggling with finding workers, especially the railroads. Um, 
Now the rail uh, the the unions will say, well, the railroads have been have been reducing uh, the workforce for a long time, which they have. Um, but uh, uh, they are just having they are having a hard time hiring people that want to do these jobs, which involve you being away from home for uh, lengthy amounts of time, um, doing work in terrible weather. Uh, it's it can be relatively dangerous at times as well. And uh, and so in order to compensate people for those work conditions, we, we pay them lots of money. Um, uh, which you know, I, is, had a, um, I had a delivery that was canceled uh, earlier in the week when I inquired why it had been canceled. And it was a weather delay. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's sunny outside. And that's apparently <laughs> the thing. It's 111 in uh, parts of Texas. And I guess they, people didn't want to go into the warehouses and uh, handle packages. Anyway, oh yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so so the railroads are having this this issue. Um, they have been in negotiations since 2020. Uh, this these things go on forever because railroads are under a different labor relations law than everybody else, uh, and they have no deadlines, so their contracts don't expire um, like they do in other industries, and so uh, things just sort of amble along. This was this is a legacy of the sort of quasi-nationalization of the railroads in the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. So this is from uh, the the Railway Labor Act, which was in the 20s. They passed um, to after a bunch of rail strikes, and they said, you know, like we're we're done with this. Uh, So they, um, yeah. So they they basically set it up so that there's a uh, national mediation board they go through to do these things and. They can take as long as they want to work this stuff out. Well, in uh, 2020, they started doing this. A lot of negotiations didn't end up happening because of COVID. So, because uh, a lot of this stuff still happens person to person. That's the other kind of interesting thing about it. You'd think this would all be very like systematized, but uh, it's actually very person to person, you know, face to face meetings uh, that that this stuff goes on. And, uh, as it's been dragging on with no resolution, the uh, they went to the mediation like they're supposed to under the Railway Labor Act, uh, and they were released from mediation in the shortest amount of time on record. It only took two months. Again, these things usually take forever. And uh, two of the appointees on the mediation board that made this decision are former union uh uh, lawyers and, and people like that. No. Yeah. So there's some suspicion that uh, that they were sort of uh, stacking the deck here. But again, uh, you know, that's their decision to decide. And and the National Mediation Board historically has a record for being very impartial. So they they are not known for for taking anybody's side. They're known for being very very good at what they do. So it would be unusual if they did that. And uh, but there is that connection there. So they get released early, and now they have a deadline because the Railway Labor Act says that once you get uh, released from this, you have a 30-day cooling-off period, and then you're allowed to strike. But there's a way out of that because it also sets up a power of the president to appoint an emergency board to uh, give recommendations on how to solve this. So Biden did that. Uh, He appointed good, impartial people to it. Both the union and the railroads put out statements that said they liked the people that he picked. And they were all people who have been on these emergency boards in the past. So uh, they seem to be fair. Um, But 
now we're on a clock again because they have uh, 30 days um, to do their work and make a report. The report's not binding. It's not like binding arbitration or anything. It's just a report of suggestions. And then there's a 30-day cooling off period after that for them to uh, hammer something out. If we get to the end of that 30-day period, uh, then the freight rail workers are allowed to strike. So a streamlined um, process, it sounds like. That's right. That's right. And again, this is they they this is how it was set up on purpose to discourage striking, um, to make it as hard as you really can to to strike. Um, and uh, but but again, we're on this we're on this 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 timetable now. And uh, the first day they could strike would be September 16th. Um, so right before the midterm elections. Interesting, because if uh, in the past, if a rail strike happens, it's completely debilitating to the economy. We're talking about 125,000 workers here. And, um, you know, it's it's the lifeblood of uh, our transportation systems for a lot of basic materials. How much of our freight does move on rail? Do you know off the top of your head? I mean, I know, obviously, containerized cargo, coal, uh, stuff that moves around in tanker cars, stuff like that. Um, I think by weight, it's somewhere around 40% or something like that. Um, But then, yeah, it gets split up into all these different categories and stuff as well. It's especially important for things like coal and fertilizer and um, uh, and, and, and some more... uh, basic materials like that more more so than for finished goods but there are you know containerized stuff does go on rail as well um but uh but yeah so uh the logic of setting this up before the midterms is that democrats have majority in congress right now and if it gets to that point and it hasn't been solved in the past congress solves the contract dispute by legislation so hmm. the idea is that um uh, if this stuff doesn't go through and if the union says, you know, oh, we don't accept, um, which they might not do, but if they do, then Democrats in Congress get to basically write the contract agreement for them. Um, obviously, they have a pretty slim uh, majority to do that in the Senate, but uh, I don't think Joe Manchin is going to cause any problems for <laughs> being uh, uh, in favor of organized labor. Um so organized labor that hauls around coal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh so 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 that's sort of the logic of how you can see this possibly playing out in favor of of the unions and sort of being a hardball thing. Now they tried to do this in the 90s. Uh and uh Ted Kennedy abandoned them on the uh, Senate floor uh which was uh not expected and it didn't work out for them. But this was while George H.W. Bush was president. So obviously, he's not a big union guy being a Republican, whereas currently we have the self-described most pro-union president leading the most pro-union administration in American history. So uh, that um, is, a, is, a, is a different factor this time around, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But, um, but that is sort of an issue that I'm watching that, that could be a big problem going forward but it could also work out rank punditry as jonah would call it um it seems like a good shot for republicans right because all they have to do is sit back you've got a democratic constituency about to fight with the democratic administration or about to be given a great big expensive sop by a democratic administration either way it seems like 
best thing for Republicans to do would be to sit on their hands, don't you think? Yeah, they don't have to do anything. Absolutely. I mean, the um, yeah, it, it's it's an entirely uh, Democrat problem. Now, the the only issue where I could see it, uh, where I could see it coming in, is you know, uh, Republicans in agricultural states want mm-hmm. to see a strike avoided at all costs. So, um, it would be interesting to see if any of them would be hesitant about this sort of thing. But uh, uh, and they, and they've done this in the past. There was a Canadian Pacific uh, strike a couple uh, for two days in earlier this year. And uh, yeah, senators from Indiana and the Dakotas and that sort of thing all sent letters to the president saying, you know, stop this. Uh, and um, how does but, the but, interunion politics work on this? I mean, I have to imagine if you're the unionized labor at San Pedro in the port of Los Angeles, that if the rails go on strike, you're going to lose hours, right? You're going to lose shifts and things because you're your schedule is going to fall apart. So do they, uh, are they, are they encouraging them to uh, strike because they think it might uh, ripple out to their benefit or are they discouraging them from doing it because it'll be an inconvenience to them more than to anybody else? Yeah. Well, the dock workers can go on strike whenever they want. Their, their contract expired on July 1st. So uh, nothing is stopping them right now other than their, their goodwill. Um, the, uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, as far as it relates to that, I'm not exactly sure, uh, the, um, there was an interesting thing that happened with the dock workers and the independent truck drivers at the port of Oakland. So the refresh me on Cal- that. Yeah. So California passed a law in 2019 that, uh, called AB five, which Tries to qualify, uh, tries to classify more workers as employees rather than independent Anti-Uber. contractors. What was that? It was the anti-Uber thing? Yes, yes, the anti-Uber thing. Uh, they eventually, by a ballot initiative, exempted rideshare from it, so it didn't even doesn't even do that now. And they exempted a bunch of other things by legislation. So they exempted a lot of the entertainment industry, for example, because there's a lot yeah, of freelance right. work there. And uh, but they have left it to apply to truck drivers. Um, and other industries, but but truck drivers is important right now. The uh, uh, California Trucking Association challenged this in federal court because trucking is a federally regulated industry since interstate commerce. And so they argued that California can't do this because it um, uh, it like subverts federal regulation. Uh, the lower court bought that and enjoined the law. So that's why this law that passed in 2019 is becoming a problem now because uh, that injunction stayed all the way through the appeal process. Well, they appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided not to rule on it. Uh, so they didn't say anything. Now, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is where it came from, ruled for ruled against the truck drivers and ruled for California. So that's why it's now going into effect. And truckers at the Port of Oakland uh, protested this by blocking the entrances to the cargo terminals there. Uh, with their trucks and and not doing that, they did this all of last week. They've since stopped doing it, um, but they but they did this uh, last week. And um, uh, uh, the unionized dock workers, uh, some of them individually, were siding with the non-union truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And this was, <laughs> and they were refusing to. They they it was reported they were refusing to cross the picket line. So the idea that 
the non-unionized truck drivers were creating a picket line that the unionized workers weren't crossing because they actually sympathized with them uh, because, you know, these are people who, uh, you know, being an independent truck driver has advantages over the other one. You get to be a small business owner. You get to make your own schedule um, and, and, and choose which loads you want to carry and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so it's very attractive for a lot of people, especially immigrants. And um, a lot of these dock workers saw them as, you know, as having more in common than that. The ILWU, the union, put out a statement the next day and said, to be clear, you know, ILWU supports AB5, and we think this is a great law, and we support workers' right to organize and all this stuff. Um, so it, it was interesting to see. I, I think there is, there seems to be a split between union membership and union leadership on that on that issue, um, because I, I think the uh, the members are a little bit less uh, excited about that because they see how it's affecting their job. Because again, like you said, if 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 they block the terminals, uh, they can't work. So, uh, so that, that's bad for them. Yeah. So what are the, um, sort of dates to look forward to in the immediate future? When are things going to start, uh, happening with this that we should, uh, be keeping an eye on? Uh, for the California situation, there's not uh, a lot of dates. They, they are very secretive about the negotiating process. Um, I actually sort of admire this in a, in a, in a backwards way that they're, there are people that are still capable of negotiating in smoke-filled rooms, it seems, uh, and uh, with these labor negotiations between the uh, port employers and the dock workers. Um, they put out a statement earlier today that said that they were making progress on the health benefits question. Um, so they said that they, they said that, that was looking good. Um, but uh, anything else is just rumors and speculation because we really don't know. The central issue is usually automation, um, and so uh, this is one of the things that holds us back as a country is we have very, very low-tech ports. If you look at ports anywhere else in the world, um, in any other developed country, and even in some less developed countries, um, they have very modern ports because they understand that uh, your connection to the global marketplace is a really, really important determinant of your national uh wealth and and standard of living yeah i've spent uh, a lot of time at the i spent well i spent a few days anyway out at the uh, port of los angeles just sort of learning how it works and you're touring around with the uh, the port guys and uh doing a piece about it and it's a really remarkable place and the complexity of it is just astounding but in terms of technology and automation you know it looks like it's on a different planet than say rotterdam yeah, Rotterdam, Singapore is is is, is another uh, example. Singapore has every incentive in the world. I mean, Singapore is not a country without its port. I mean, they need that. It's it's right along trade routes for everybody coming through Asia, and it's a huge transshipment port too, which means a lot of the goods that come into Singapore do not stay in Singapore. They get loaded onto a different boat to go somewhere else. Whereas the U.S., you know, Los Angeles is a final destination for for most things. So. Um, uh, they don't have as much as much economic reason to uh, prize efficiency, uh, but but you know our labor relations, uh, the way that we set this up, uh, basically gives the union veto power over this because uh, they hold the leverage uh, with the ability to strike, um, and uh, if if uh, if they are satisfied with the terms that they're given, it's going to be something that's going to keep the inefficiencies around so they can preserve their jobs. Um, 
which again, that's their job. They're a union. They're, they, their job is to preserve their to preserve uh, jobs. Really, though, I mean, so again, I, I because I don't uh, live in Europe, I don't have a, a great command over their their politics. And every time I talk about this stuff, I, I hear from people who tell me I don't have it quite right. But um, you know, you've seen a, a very different kind of attitude toward um employee employer relations among some of the big Euro- european unions like ig metal um for instance is, is a famous one about that where they take a more global view of the health of the industries in which their people are employed and there have been times when the unions have not uh negotiated for as large a wage hike as they probably could have got or um even more you know sort of generous working terms because they want to preserve their domestic competitiveness against uh, foreign uh, manufacturers, particularly. So it is possible to have, you know, kind of a a more enlightened and far-seeing union leadership than the one we've had. I've often said that, you know, the problem with the American labor union, the American labor movement isn't that we have unions, it's that we have these unions, you know, that we have leaders and people like that who are just, you know, kind of rotten and uh, corrupt and counterproductive. And it's it's easy to imagine a different kind of labor situation in which you had a better sort of union and a better sort of union leadership that would make these things, uh, would make these relationships more, both more harmonious and more productive, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had a piece at Capital Matters uh, earlier this week about uh, Sweden and yeah. their labor relations very very different from the united states i mean it's just it's a, it's a different planet compared to what we have uh, the um but they're weird compared to everyone over there they I mean, are they are they're very unusual, strange yes yes but one of the things that they do have in common with with um uh with other european countries is is what you're saying that they they have a more ability to take a long-term view of things and are consider competitiveness like international competitiveness as an important thing to preserve and if you're if you're in sweden's shoes that makes perfect sense you're a small country uh you're 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 only bordered really by by norway um and uh and you're 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 on you know you're right on a a major body of water you want to be competitive in shipping that that's that's good for everybody and um as a relatively small country their sort of leadership class everybody knows each other and so a lot of people have worked for all these different organizations there's a small uh, central zone of of uh of institutions that keep things together and they sort of have this idea of you know, it's good to preserve Swedish competitiveness and it's good for us to be an open economy because that's how Sweden is going to get rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for the United States, when you're a continent spanning country with 300 some million people, you have very fractured uh, leadership class that um, is much bigger. Uh, so it's just harder to coordinate because it's so big, but also, um, you know, very different with that. And then, you know, in the U.S., all of the unions, well, basically all of the unions support the same political party. That's not true in Sweden either. There are unions that support the 
you know, center right parties over there. There's and then there are unions that support uh, the center left, the center left and the far left parties and all the rest of that. And um, and so it's not as as it's not as binary and it's not, you know, uh, it's not just a, a cover for progressive politics, which is what a lot of smaller, union stuff comes down to in the have, U.S. Smaller countries have healthier corporatism, you're saying. <laughs> that is that is sort of uh that is sort of the way that it is i mean yeah it, in sweden it's it everything is set by a couple of cartels basically yeah um as a result they 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 don't have uh nasty labor disputes very often so i guess that's good but uh they have but they but they can't they have a very hard time uh assimilating immigrants for example because yeah uh, the one thing, the one thing that they do, that the unions do insist on in terms of global things, is that you know it's Swedes first. Uh, so um, they have this very, very difficult time finding private sector jobs because nearly, you know, something eighty percent of people are, are union members. Uh, they have a very hard time finding private sector jobs for immigrants over there. At least which, you're a particularly nasty form of politics. I wrote about this some in a in a book I wrote some years ago that. Um, there's a lot of employment discrimination against immigrants in Sweden. And the number one complaint that Sweden's Swedes have about immigrants is they don't work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's basically how it goes. Yeah. And, and the ones that do have jobs, they all work for the public sector because the government uh, carves out jobs for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, obviously that's not a great way to be uh, simulated if you're only allowed to work for the government because it just looks like you're getting a, a you know protective handout so welfare by by other means yeah yeah well we've already run over an hour so maybe we'll wrap it up here i guess i will just end by saying that i'm a i'm a i'm a sympathizer with smoke-filled rooms i kind of like the smoke-filled rooms yeah uh, yeah compared to some of the more democratic alternatives but i trust those rooms a lot more if they're full of swedish people <laughs> That's that's definitely right. And, uh, you know, it's like you, you say, uh, yeah, uh, the difference between uh, America and Switzerland is uh, America's or Switzerland is full of Swiss people and America's full of maniacs. Right. Uh, that is my my line on that. There's a guy who is a columnist at one of the Swiss uh, newspapers who um, I speak to every now and then who's interviewed me a, a couple of times and. Uh, who thinks I just have it entirely wrong on Switzerland and that I'm way too uh, romantic and uh, idealizing in my attitude toward that country. So I'm trying to uh, reform myself and take a more uh, cynical and uh, analytical view of my my favorite country outside of outside of the United States. Well, Dominic, thank you for sitting in for uh, Charlie this week. I appreciate it. I enjoyed the uh, conversation and we will be back next week. Thank you. Thanks for having me.